Hi, this is Hank Davis, and you're listening to Episode 6 of the Narratives of North Broad podcast, Stories from Temple Health. Today's guest on our podcast is the remarkable Dr. Zoe Marr. Raised by artistic parents, a former dancer herself, who has become a trauma surgeon at Temple, and also one of the leading physician advocates in our region for changing gun laws, working with legislators and communities to stop the flow of gun violence victims before they find their way into Temple's trauma bay. We're so pleased she took the time to speak with us. So now I bring you Dr. Marr. Thanks for doing this with us. Happy to be here. Great, great. So we're going to start by, the way I always start with these podcasts, is really your backstory. I'm interested in who you are, where you're from, and what was your path to medicine. Sure. So, um, well, it's actually a very personal story, as many stories are. They're um, the best kind, yeah. I will say. Okay. So I am from South Jersey. I was raised in um, a really excellent family. I have four brothers. And um, I was actually not born in a hospital myself. So my parents wow. were sort of, uh, you know, self-identified hippies. And uh, during the time that uh, they were um, having their kids, they decided to have a few of us at home. So I was born at home. The very first time I was ever in a hospital was actually after one of my brothers was uh, brought to St. Christopher's Hospital when he was a a child. As in Philadelphia? Yeah, in Philly. Mm -hmm. So born and raised in South Jersey, never been in a hospital. And when I was eight, my brother Owen was born. And he had been born in a hospital, um, which was lucky because my mom recognized soon after he was born that he was blue. And she was the one who actually said, this is not what babies are supposed to look like. This is not okay. Um, and you know, she had all of her normal prenatal care, but he had a congenital heart disease, which was recognized pretty quickly when she brought that to the attention of the care providers. And he was um, transported immediately first to Cooper and then ultimately to St. Christopher's Hospital for Children where he underwent an atrial septostomy when he was very young. And um, then, so the first time I was ever in a hospital was actually down the halls of St. Chris, which is pretty wild because of course, my exposure to pediatric surgery was as a resident at St. Christopher's. Um, So I recognized some of the very same hallways which have been the first hallways I'd ever seen in a hospital. And thankfully for us, he was able to come home. But it's interesting because um, my parents being um, the open, honest, just, they're just really good parents. They explained what was happening with him in a way that made sense to me as an eight-year-old. And in a way that I could actually at that time appreciate that, like, he might not come home. And... Um, that is kind of where my entry into medicine came from. So he subsequently had um, uh, con- open congenital heart surgery when he was six months old at CHOP, um, which is where I spent some time as a fellow in my training here in Philadelphia. Wow. And, um, and then eventually came home to our, our, to our house. And so that w- it was that experience that um, made me realize uh, the gift that you can give people with medicine and how magical that is. You know, really. So it began with your little brother and his issues, and that was really your first exposure to the power of medicine, the benefit of medicine, the magic of medicine, and yeah. it really stuck with you. And you think your parents weren't medical people? No. That's where it really became. My mom. My mom is an artist, so my parents are both from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. My dad was raised in the Northeast. Um, both of his parents actually um, were raised in this neighborhood, in the nice town Tioga section of Philadelphia, back in the. Um, back in the 20s and 30s. And um, my mom was from the Southwest, so she grew up in Bartram Gardens back, mm-hmm. um, you know, back, wow. in the, back in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And um, so my parents are both from Philadelphia. I have uh, about 20 first cousins in Philadelphia, even more, you know, second cousins now. Wow. Um, so it's a big Philly family, but um, my first, yeah. So my parents are not medical. My mom's an artist. She went to, um, uh, uh, Philadelphia, um, uh, 
the heck is it called? Oh, the University of the Arts. Right it was now, formerly right, known sure. as the Philadelphia Academy of Art, I think. I don't remember. But she went to University of the Arts. My dad actually went to St. Joe's and Temple. All right. Um, yeah, so they're both both Philly people. My dad's a contractor. My mom now waits tables. Um, but um, really, my mother is an artist, and my father is a musician and an actor. If you ask them what their, like, sort of true self is that's but not medical so did you ever uh have any of that inclination to do like acting and art and music yeah so yes totally so you don't grow up in a house where your parents are both artistic um and especially a house with my dad without at least trying those things on for size so i i i acted a bit i actually have two brothers who are still active um in theater one of oh, wow. them in philadelphia um but i didn't find my voice there i did however um i was a, a ballet student for many years growing up and then ultimately became a modern dancer and actually my first career was as a modern dancer um so i was in the second company of philodenko wow um, during wow. during college yeah so i actually lived in philly the first time i lived in philly was during the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of college, where I was going to college in New York. Um, and I came and I lived with my Aunt Kathleen um, here in Philly and uh, worked in a diner in the Northeast um, on Cotman Ave and uh, danced with Philodenko. And I was here because I'd auditioned for the second company and I'd gotten in. And it was wow. like, that was my first dream and my first career was in modern dance. So then when did you decide to make the pivot to medical school and becoming a doctor? So I think I always, so when I went to college, I went to NYU because it's a great performing arts school mm -hmm. and it's also got Fish great academics. Stuff, right? yeah, 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 right, right. Yeah, so my intention always had been sort of like do training in modern dance, give it a good try, but recognizing that really uh, the performing arts, uh, like most, um, most careers like that, they have a, you know, the likelihood of you being successful ultimately is very small. And also, if you're an athlete, your time for optimal performance is short. So you've got to right. have a backup plan, so to yeah. speak. So I had always intended to go to, go to medical school. Oh, okay. So it wasn't really a pivot. Um, it was more like I never thought that my pathway to medicine would be straight. I always knew that I would sort of weave a little bit on my way here. So you didn't come straight from undergrad into med school? I you, did not. So for you. So... During that summer I was dancing with Philodanko, I actually blew my knee out during a performance uh, at the Miriam Theater, actually. Mm -hmm. It was on stage, and I blew my knee out. And that was the second knee surgery I'd had. And I knew that kind of after that, the likelihood of me recovering the physical ability to do what's required to be a professional modern dancer was, you know, small. So, um, but I still didn't come straight into medicine. I actually spent two years as a junior high school science teacher in New Orleans with Teach for America before medical school. Um, and the reason I chose to do that, I mean, I was, I could have come into medical school directly, but the reason I chose to do it is because I, um, medicine is like a marriage and, um, you need to be ready to commit fully. Um, and I wanted to have a different set of life experiences and a different perspective and, a, a, you know, an, an actual lived experience doing something and viewing the world from a very different perspective before I came to medical school. So, so I had a whole bunch of questions, and I do, and I had an order <laughs> all planned, but I'm going to jump out of order because... With your arts background, both in your family and in your own, uh, you know, path before you went into medicine, do you find, does that help you as a doctor now? Do you have time for, room for, do the arts help you be a better doctor? Um, or, yeah, you know, or, or live as a doctor and... and so I think that the way that it's mo it's easiest to see that relationship now mm -hmm. um, is that uh, during my time uh, dancing and um, sort of through, and again, like my, my dad still acts. Um, mm -hmm. I have brothers who are musicians. I have a brother who still acts. So I still see them in performance. But I think that, um, you know, the arts are so much about connecting with humanity. Mm -hmm. And I do think that sometimes in medicine, um, that gets lost. And I think it's true definitely in surgery that it can get lost um, because you're so focused on the objective data and the problem before you. So I think it's actually 
um, though maybe not like on a day-to-day, I don't necessarily draw on specific Mm -hmm. skills that I developed in the arts. I think that the fact that I was raised in a family where that was important and had um, a time period in my life where that was something I really focused on, I think it has created a sort of base for myself that, um, that lets me connect with that part of medicine very easily and on a pretty regular basis. I also think that um, there's an art to being a doctor and to put on, you need to put on some sort of persona or performance every day, especially in a profession like trauma surgery. Um, So I think in some senses, and I'm seeing a lot of that now during doctoring, and they're starting us earlier and earlier to practice communicating with patients, like you're saying, and also like how you said when you were an eight-year-old and your parents had to tell you that your brother might not be coming home. They're trying to instill that type of stuff in us earlier and earlier in, in our education, which I think is great. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. It's a it's an important thing to be able to, you know, like the art, the art's about connecting with people, right? So, I mean, honestly, though I have a great um, skill set that I've learned through my medical training, the ability to just connect with another human being is really valuable in medicine. And um, I think it the ability to do that makes you a better doctor uniformly. So I guess, you know, really to stay on the arts for a minute, you know, what is narrative medicine if not trying to sort of focus on stories and on listening and on connecting with patients and metabolizing your experiences? And, you know, you see and experience so much here. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether having an arts background or seeing the world through the arts, you know, A, helps you, one, connect and communicate better and if you you know and also if it helps you react and process what you feel and experience better or looking around your office there are you know i see the surge a surgeon's prayer so a surgeon's prayer um which is long but um it has a few lines in it which i think are really important um is actually something that hung in my father-in-law's office before he died. Oh. Um, he was a general surgeon in Western Pennsylvania and um, uh, an Indian man, uh, was raised in India, went to medical school in India, was a surgeon in India, and then immigrated to the United States when he was through all of that training into a hierarchical surgical training program in Washington, D.C where he was able to actually graduate. Two of seven graduated, and he was one of seven who graduated, one of two of seven. Um, And he was a general surgeon. So his kids, um, uh, my husband and his two sisters, none of them wanted to go into medicine. (laughs) And so when my husband brought me home, he was like, my (laughs) prayers have been answered. and um, anyway, so I have great fondness for, for Joe, but he died now almost four years, actually a little more than four years ago now. Um, Is there a line in there that resonates with yeah, you most? So, um, I mean, honestly, there are so many good minds. Um, so it's there in the, in the fourth paragraph, it says, direct my hand and grant to me dexterity to draw with skill and the edged steel. And lest I lose the virtues born of tender sympathy, let me let the let me the penalty of each incision feel. So basically, that concept that you know we're doing some you know you're doing you're doing something that requires manual dexterity, but the implications of what you do um, really require that you connect with your patient and feel almost feel the incisions that you're making in other. And people. that comes back to the art yeah, thing and it all does, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Doctor Mar, tell us about. Uh, so you, you, know, you went to NYU undergrad, and yep. then you went to med school here, mm-hmm. and then you did, you say, your residency here, mm-hmm. and then you went to Penn for your uh-huh. uh, trauma fellowship, and then you came back here. So the questions I want to ask you are, uh, why trauma surgery, mm-hmm. um, and then also why Temple? Yeah. So why Temple? Well, why Temple is probably, uh, you know... Uh, Obvious. To a Easier lot of to understand now, knowing it's, that you used to yeah. work at a diner on the yeah, Common yeah. Avenue. Well, right, so know. so I one I wanted to be in Philadelphia for medical school. Um, we have a very strong family connection here. I feel connected to the city. I wanted to learn and then learn to work in a place that I feel responsible to, um, and this is a place I feel responsible to. Um, and Temple, actually, you know, I uh, the first year I got into medical school, I declined admission. 
I had gotten to a medical school um, in New York, and I wanted to be a temple. <laughs> wow. And I declined admission. And I hadn't gotten into temple the first year I applied because um, uh, people who know me know I usually run about a minute late for everything. It's pretty consistent. Well, I see you going so fast. Down yeah, the I'm always. always I try to move. I try to move. A, I try to put a lot into any given day and any given moment. And for those of the, for people who know me, they would not be surprised to hear that I actually submitted my application to Temple a day past the deadline oh. the first year. And so when I reached out to Temple and I was like, you know, so distraught, why didn't I get an interview? They were like, well, there's a deadline and you didn't meet the deadline. <laughs> so I applied the second year and I was really lucky enough to get in and then um, came here for medical school. And why Temple? You know, because of the mission. I mean, Temple, um, Temple's mission is one that really resonates with me. And, um, and it also happens to be in a city uh, to which I feel responsible. So it was a, really a perfect match for me. And why, when and why did you decide to do trauma surgery? Um, that's a that's a harder question to answer, which is why I didn't answer it first. <laughs> so I originally thought I was going to be a pediatric cardiac surgeon. Okay. That was my plan, and that was informed by my experience with my brother, right. the interest that was incited there. Um, but at some point in my medical training, I realized that to follow that path, that you're you would be married to that career and only that career, and. Um, as a person who was hoping to have my own children someday, I worried that if I chose that career path in part, I wouldn't ever be able to see my own kids. I'd be taking care of somebody else's. Um, and then, God, I mean, when you're a trainee at Temple, it's hard not to see what the power in being a trauma surgeon is. Um, so there have been many great mentors of mine, and um, the most important ones uh, in trauma have been at Temple. So, you know, Dr. Amy Goldberg, Dr. Abby Pathak, Dr. Ola Scholholm, Dr. Tom Santora, they were all here when I was a medical student or resident and kind of helped to craft my thought about what career might best match my set of skills. And, um, and it turns out it's trauma surgery. So I'll ask you that. What makes, you know, I don't, what makes a good trauma surgeon? What skills are, you know, do you find are um, so helpful? What, 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 what do you need to be a good trauma surgeon? Um, so, I mean, you, you need mental skills, you need technical skills, and then you need some resiliency skills, which I would put in a kind of separate category. Um, so mentally, I mean, trauma surgery is unique in that um, patients come in and demand that you make the correct decision, the correct assessment, like, nearly immediately um, for the sickest trauma patients. And that's something that interests me. I have always liked, as you mentioned earlier, you know, doing mm -hmm. things fast. Um, and I liked that part, the cadence of it, that it's something where, you know, the, the patient presents, there's a set of problems, you have to figure out what that set of problems is very rapidly and intervene to make a difference. And I also like that you can really see the impact of your effort. Um, your smart decision-making results in pretty immediate impact. Um, and that's not true in every surgical field. Um, and then in terms of the actual skill, what I love about trauma is that you are a general surgeon. You have to be comfortable in every body cavity. You have to understand the anatomy, the physiology, and you have to actually be able to operate pretty much everywhere, um, with the exception of a few places. Um, and so that really drew me in. It's really um, great. And then in terms of resiliency, and I am coming to appreciate this more and more as, um, as I'm a trauma surgeon for longer and longer, you know, you have to be able to be resilient in the moment um, when there are situations that seem in retrospect impossible to handle that you are able to sort of um, press the pause button on any emotional response you might have or um, in favor of the intellectual uh, action-oriented response. And then, uh, like long-term, you have to be resilient long-term because, as you mentioned before, you see a lot. Um, and uh, if you're a person who connects with human beings, it can weigh on you, um, the suffering that happens. So can you tell us about an impossible situation? And also, well, I'll leave it at that. So... Um, I was recently contacted by a friend who uh, knows that I have interest in firearm injury prevention advocacy. 
and the inquirer related to the um, two shootings that happened this week of children was asking for some comment about the specialty training that trauma surgeons get in the care of the very young with respect to gun violence and gun injuries. Um, and this friend reached out to me because she knows that I uh, have a passion for this and um, I'm developing some degree of expertise in kind of that field. Um, and uh, I directed her actually to pediatric trauma surgeons who are really the ones that should be caring for these kids. Um, and this relates to the question you just asked because part of the reason why I don't didn't want to talk to any news media per se about that particular question is because my strongest feeling is that as a trauma surgeon, you should never have to have specialty training in treating an infant or a young child <laughs> for a, a bullet wound. I mean, that's just in my mind still, particularly as the mother of a four-year-old, just so unthinkable. So the hardest moments that I've had have been um, those caring for babies and made harder since I've had my kid because the sound of somebody else's kid crying after having been shot just sounds an awfully lot like any other kid, including your own. So probably the hardest situation now twice that I've had to deal with is caring for a two-year-old after being shot. One was shot in the head and another in the chest. So were you, were you here? I'm sorry. No, you're go good. Ahead. I was go just going to say, so over the years, have you learned better ways to... I'm going to use your word, uh, metabolize that and carry that kind of stuff with you every day. And how do you deal with that? Yeah. So I don't know if I found a better way. That's it. That's tough. Because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if there's a good way. There probably is. What I have found and what I am sort of putting my energy into um, is uh, kind of on the prevention side and recognizing that like really it should just shouldn't happen. And what are the ways um, that I can, with my knowledge, my expertise, with whatever um, uh, voice I have um, that people want to listen to, um, uh, try to prevent this stuff from happening? So one way you find meaning in what you do in a way to sort of process and deal with what you see is you channel it into trying to do work beyond the hospital yes. to try to prevent gun violence. Totally. So, so is that sort of the genesis of your passion for this? Is it because you saw it so much? It was a way to sort of um, channel your energy into something uh, constructive? Uh, I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I'm kind of asking that question. Yeah. And, and then tell us sort of what you do. What, what have you done? I know you testified recently in Harrisburg. But right. What do you tell these legislatures? And what are you able to do? Yeah. So, um, so... I mean, the genesis is mm -hmm. a l like a little bit different. Okay. So the genesis definitely informed by having seen um, too much over the years. I mean, I can only imagine trauma faculty that have been doing this for longer than, than I have. But, you know, I've been at Temple since 2004. And, um, or at Penn, I was at Penn for a short period of time there. But in Philadelphia since 2004. And um, it's really unreal the amount of firearm injury we see up here. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really, it's crazy. And what's interesting about life and things like this is that it becomes so normalized around here. Right. So like for, you just think like, this is just how it is. And I do think there was a period of time during my training where I just kind of thought, ah, oh, this is just how it is. I don't know if it maybe is these couple of, um, couple of situations like I mean, there's been many of them but a few situations that just seem so completely outside the pale like how could this possibly really be what's happening that I think allowed me to come back to like what is the true perspective which is that it's it's not okay <laughs> all of it's outside the pale what's happening with respect to um to gun violence in um in this community um but the real genesis of the advocacy um, or I should say regenesis, because when I was a student, I was very, very motivated in this, did some work with physicians for social responsibility, advocating and going up to the hill. But the regenesis was that the whole hashtag, this is, uh, you know, the, right. this is our lane, right. which, um, as many people know, was the medical community and particularly so, the trauma community's response to. So, Dr. Marr, what is the answer? You know, how do we stop the gun violence? Do you have, I mean, what is your take on this? And what do you tell the 
the senators and representatives when you go to Harrisburg and and what you know do you have a idea of how to reduce it yeah <laughs> if I really knew how to reduce it I would Mayor Mar, governor, whatever. I, I think that the, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. in our community, I think that the most important thing uh, that we could do that would reduce um, gun violence and, and firearm injury is equity in this community, and that would um, that would be an important part of an answer in any place where there's gun violence. Um, but I also think that um, because really homicide and suicide and mass shooting are three separate entities and they have three different pathogenesis mm -hmm. pathways. Um, but the thing that is true about all of them is I think hopelessness. And if you look at the literature, that's sort of the common theme. So I think that really to fix the issue of gun violence, you have to address the things that underpin feelings of hopelessness, whether it be in an individual or in a community or in a nation. And obviously, that's a hard thing to fix. And when you say equity, you know, what exactly, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean or how you, how we achieve, you know, in North Philadelphia or in the city? what that looks like. Sure. So, I mean, certainly some of the contributors to the urban uh, firearm injury problem have to do with um, uh, racial inequality. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they have to do with socioeconomic barriers that mm -hmm. have been longstanding. They have to do with um, uh, structural violence. They have to do with cycles of poverty. I mean, it's, it's you know, the problem of gun violence in Philadelphia is one that has been building and been uh, now uh, there's been cyclical exposure of the children in North Philadelphia to this, right. um, both to the contributors to gun violence and also gun violence itself. And so until you fix the problems that allow that to be happening in the community, you, you're never going to get rid of the problem. I mean, it's... Right. It's not just an access to gun issue necessarily. No, or, or no. It's, I mean, you know, it's, no, right, I, it's right. not just an access right, to gun right, issue. Right, right. I have access to guns, but, you know, I have been able to find my path through, through life mm -hmm. without needing to rely on a firearm for any of the things that people rely on firearms for. I've been able to obtain an education. Let's start there. I mean, the education right. system in the city of Philadelphia is broken. Um, you know, having actual access to be able to get a job that's going to let you pay your bills. That, that's a problem in the city of Philadelphia. I mean, the food desert situation is right, a problem. Right, right. The access to transport's a problem. You know, the fact that there are structures that are in place in the city, even just the, the, the physical structures of the city, that set people up for failure. Uh, let me ask you about, about being a trauma surgeon again and, and, and what you see here. You know, I... I in the narrative medicine program, what I see the students, what is what they often want to write about, yeah. what they talk about in the story slams, yeah. what seems so powerful to mm -hmm. them is their first and early experiences in the trauma bay. Yeah. When they come from all over the country, all over the region, all over the city, and they see children killed before their eyes, and you know, it, it, it it's. I don't know if you went through that too, but it seems to be that is what they were. That is what moves them so much. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. They must come to you. And do you do you talk to the students a lot about this? How do you? What is your advice to them when they are so and it was, you know on rotations or when they're just shadowing and they see these kind of things for the first time? Um. How do you help them? I guess. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, you, we 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 do debrief frequently uh, with the team, um, and that includes the students on the teams. Um, you know, I remember the first trauma resuscitations that I saw as a student here, and um, it's shocking, not only because of the way that patients come in injured, but then because of what actually happens to people mm -hmm. in the trauma bay in the conduct of trying to save a life. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the general advice I would give is um, it's really upsetting what we see. It's, 
it's deeply disturbing and it's still deeply disturbing and upsetting to me and sometimes I got to talk it out and that's true for all the faculty so the advice I give students is to not come away from the experience thinking that this is normal or okay and also not thinking that you know being upset about things is abnormal because that's actually like the most human response you should have to some of what we see down there um and also to just encourage people to you know continue to think of you know ways we can all contribute to a world in which the reality that we are seeing firsthand here is not present um Thank you. And and so, how do the legend? How do the when you talk outside of the hospital and and share the world that you see and that you live in with legislators and the public? What kind of response do you get? And you know, what's that like? Um, people are um, often surprised, to be honest with you, about what we see. I don't think that. And words don't give justice to what it is. So, you know, in reality, for any person who's in a position of authority to to make some small change that could improve this situation, to really understand it, they'd have to come actually see it. And I think that's why students have such a strong feeling about it, because you hear about this really exciting operation and, you know, these heroic life-saving measures that take place. But, like, actually seeing what it looks like, it's not pretty even when it turns out well. It's chaotic, it's, um, it's violent. Even the trauma bay is violent, right, right. you know? Um, so I think that oftentimes legislators are very surprised. They're surprised to hear about the volume of patients that we see. Um, surprised to hear a little bit about who we see. You know, I think that there is a misconception because of a long-standing um, uh, misinformation that's been perpetuated about who's getting shot in this community. Um, and I think people are surprised to hear that most of our patients are, they could be your loved one. I mean, they're, they're folks in our community who are just doing their best to live a life, who come in um, uh, injured. So uh, surprised um, and I think appreciative of us sharing our perspective. Um, you know, I waiting to see that turn into action. Um, to be honest with you, I don't really, there is no joy in getting, uh, you know, having a, a senator or a legislator be surprised by what they hear. There would only be joy in having that turn into actual action to reduce, uh, to reduce rates of firearm injury. Maybe you need to try to get them to come down and watch. I don't know, have yeah. you tried that? So we've talked about that, having them come down and do Cradle to Grave, which is uh, one of our violence mm -hmm. uh, prevention outreach uh, programs. Um, we've talked about that. And it might be valuable. It's, it's difficult to, to convince legislators to travel sometimes, but it's, it's a, something we're thinking about. We'll see if it happens. So who do they think your patients are? And then who do you tell them they are? Um, so I was at a, um, a conference recently where uh, a Pennsylvania state legislator who um, is knowledgeable in making legislative decisions about health care issues referred to the Philadelphia gun violence problem as a gang problem. And it's, um, <laughs> it's really hard sometimes, right, because this is an issue that's been politicized. It is not political. This is a healthcare issue. This is a community issue. This is a public health issue. It's not a political issue, but it's been politicized. And because it's been politicized, people have such strong, deep-seated feelings um, related to it. Um, and in my viewpoint, in order to make progress, um, I have to use caution to... Um, use language and to talk about things in the public purview in a way that doesn't alienate huge swaths of the population, irrespective of how I feel personally. Because quite honestly, like, if my personal vision for what it would look like is never going to happen. It's irrelevant. It's never going to happen. I'm interested in actually getting something done mm -hmm. that's going to happen. So, you know, when things like that happen, it's so tough, right? So it's a public 
it's a public forum. Mm -hmm. There are hundreds of people there. Um, and I was actually moderating a session when, when this was said. And, you know, I just, you know, I, after they finished making their comments, I just reminded the audience that, like, in fact, this, this is not a gang problem. This is a, uh, you know, a, a community level problem where people from all sorts of backgrounds are impacted. Look, and, and that actually raises another, another question, sort of a segue, which is, how do you know what is the sort of mission responsibility of a physician outside of the hospital outside of the you know the patient relationship um you know how do you you know what do you what do you advise your trainees and how do you how do you balance it in your own life and how do you find time for it yeah i mean from my perspective and i feel pretty strongly about this i believe in the sort of ama declaration of responsibility which says that physicians are bound mm -hmm. to um, not just act in medical the medical world but also to address anything that would ameliorate suffering um, for your patient and so that that goes beyond that it goes to political that goes to social that goes to economic it goes to really every part of life um, we are privileged to be allowed to take care of other human beings during their most vulnerable moments. And that carries responsibility that extends beyond the doors of the hospital. Right. Um, and I really feel strongly that, um, you know, because we at this hospital have the opportunity to actually really see what does it mean to be shot? What, I mean, what does that mean? It's not just a theoretical thing. So like people who are making decisions about this, about at least the legislative piece of things, the funding pieces, sort of the equity pieces in society, mm -hmm. they don't actually by and large see and understand the things that we see and understand. Um, and it's not just the trauma surgeons. I mean, our students, you guys walk into that trauma bay and if you are, um, if you are viewing it from the human perspective, you don't have to have the medical knowledge to understand exactly what the steps of the thoracotomy are. You can see what this does. And it comes with a responsibility. And I, I agree with you, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think that we as a healthcare community um, should feel free to speak openly and honestly about the issues where we hold expertise. And this is one that for sure the people who walk the halls of this hospital and who care for our patients hold expertise in. You alluded to earlier, hashtag stay in your lane. Lane. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Did so do, are you, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not. So yeah. in November of 2018, the NRA uh, tweeted. Um, it was uh, in response to a medical professional organization putting forth a statement about firearm injury. And they basically said these self-important uh, doctors um, uh, uh, you know, something uh, to the effect of us being gun control freaks um, who've consulted no one but ourselves on these issues should stay in our lane. And that's why. Implying right. that, like, this isn't my lane. And it's interesting because I don't know why it took, uh, the day that happened, I was, like, be between just deeply saddened, like, shook at my core, and so pissed off. Like, it was like... It was such a, a guttural, emotional thing. And it's because it's what I see every day. Like, please do not imply that I actually don't understand this disease because we're the ones taking care of this disease. And like um, you said, all they would have to do is come down themselves and take a look, even without the medical expertise, and realize, wow, you guys are the closest to this without it actually happening to you. Yeah. It was great to see, actually, how medicine responded. Yeah. You know, incredible passion and voice I yeah. thought you know and triggered a lot of people to speak out totally so and we you know we um, uh, I spoke with uh, Dr. Beard who's a colleague here at the hospital mm -hmm. and then we spoke with a mentor colleague of ours at the University of Pennsylvania Dr. Sims and kind of just like within the first couple of days along with other collaborators Scott Charles Dr. Goldberg right, right. others within a couple of days just thought like what can we do because I was like you know I tweeted for a couple of days and then I'm like all right I'm now done with Twitter this is we must convert this into action because we have fallen short so many times we're also busy I mean you have so you much are. going on right. you're like 
you know, you're treading water all the time, right? Between your career and your family. And it's hard to like add another thing, another big thing. But I just, the thought of like not doing something was enough for us to form this coalition. Because we thought like, you know, the, the, the national professional organizations would do something. And the folks we know who are in leadership positions were like doing something. But when you are talking about national action, national level, it can be very limited and very slow. And to be honest with you, I just didn't have the patience for it. We didn't have the patience for it. We felt really strongly that if for no other reason than the sort of cathartic, I mean, honestly, partially selfish catharsis that you get from from actually feeling like you're pushing the envelope and you're moving the needle just a little bit to see one less patient, um, we felt like we had to do something at the state level. And that's kind of where the whole coalition came from, where this advocacy was sort of generated from. I would, I would uh, love to help you work on anything you want to write or work on, because um, I think it's so, you know, it's so important, and I think you guys have such, such credibility. Um, I want to say on, on a, on a bright side of it, coming from a student's perspective, and I've only been here for a couple months, but I don't know if you guys actively are doing it. You guys, as in the trauma department, but you guys are. 80 to 90% of what all the students are always talking about and wanting to get involved. And I think from that aspect, I think you guys are really building and cultivating a next generation of students who are really going to want to be involved with stuff like this and really want to make a difference, which I think is great. If anything, the students at Temple are definitely attracted. I don't know if it's the personality or affect you guys give off, but it's also the quality of the students that we attract to Temple. I mean, this is like partially why I came back here as faculty, because having been a medical student here, a resident here, and now faculty, the trainees here, the undergraduate medical trainees and the graduate medical trainees are just such a, a wonderful group of people who, um, I mean, it's it's really awesome to have such a great group of students here. So that's great. I'm happy we're exciting interest. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that, it, that it's true that we will be able to build the movement. I yeah. want to uh, wind down because I know that you are busy and this has been really wonderful. Do you have a, you know, I'm all about stories. I'm a storyteller all my life. Is there a particular patient story you want to tell us um, or you can tell us a particular patient that has stayed with you or that has affected you profoundly or maybe even changed you? Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'll give you a time to breathe and think. You probably have many, but I, I always love to ask doctors if they have a patient story they want to share. I do have many. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of them are so sad, you know. <laughs> a lot of them are so sad. Oh. That's okay. That's real. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there honestly, there have been a lot of patients who have deeply impacted me and who continue to deeply impact me um, with regularity. I think that, you know, the, um, the Thanksgiving Day, the kid who came in on Thanksgiving Day, that, that was a big moment for me. As tell, a, tell us briefly. Yeah. So I was here on Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, as is the case on most calls, it was a, a trauma page, a level one uh, gunshot wound, but it said PED, P-E-D on it. And I thought maybe they got it wrong. Maybe it wasn't like a kid, as in pediatric, but maybe it was like not a gunshot wound. Maybe it was a mm-hmm. pedestrian struck. And um, when I got down to the trauma bay, very immediately realized that no, in fact, it was a child. And you know, as I walk into the trauma bay, you know, you you open the double doors. There are lots of people there. You start to put your personal protective equipment on, and I can hear a kid crying. And I kind of mentioned this to you before, but Mm -hmm. my daughter at that time was two, and it sounded so much like my kid. (laughs) I was like, and that's one of those moments where you realize, like, there is a limit to resilience. Because, um, like, as a, being a mother is the only place in my life where, it's always made sense. It's been very easy. And even in the hard moments, it's just pure joy, 
right? So the sound of a kid crying in real pain is just like such an impossible sound for me because I love my daughter so much and I don't want to hear any kid cry like that. So, you know, I can hear this kid crying and the kid is crying like, like he's really hurt. (laughs) And when I walk into the trauma bay, it's a two year old little boy and he's shot in the right chest. And it's like, it was so hard because, you know, we deal with adult patients all the time and somehow we're all able, you know, it's just like what we do, right? So a 15 year old kid, a 16 year old kid, I mean, that's somebody's kid too. But in the moment, it's not so hard to just close that down and just deal with the patient. But with a two-year-old, I could see on everybody's face. It was just like palatable in the room, the collective panic. Because this is somebody's like little kid. And it's Thanksgiving. And it's Thanksgiving. (laughs) And it's somebody's little kid. And he's really hurt. Um, And so, yeah, so we, we had to intubate him. We had to put a breathing tube in him. We had to put a chest tube in him. We had to take him to CAT scan. He had a very bad liver injury. In an adult patient, he may have had an operation or an embolization. Um, and so in addition to like the challenge of dealing with like shut down the resilience piece, right? Being able to put up that little like break front in the moment that keeps you from having, you know, the honest for me, the real emotional attachment I have to like people that I'm caring for, I have to put the wall up because otherwise I'd be a mess every time right. I went down right. to the trauma bay. Right. Like I am right now talking about it. I um, oh, I have tissues. It's all right. No, they'll stay inside. It's clean. Okay. They're close. They're close, but they're going to stay in. Okay. Um, you know, in addition to like that and the fact that every other member of the care team was having the same feeling, like everybody. And it was just the same feeling you have to then try to figure out like how to actually take care of a two-year-old which goes to this interview request we don't get special training in how to deal with a gunshot wound in a two-year-old kid because nobody should get special training in how to deal with a gunshot wound in a two-year-old kid because a two-year-old kid should not be getting shot and period to, and to be uh having the emotions that you're having now i can imagine they were a hundred times more or more than mm-hmm. that and then to have to emerge as a leader and get to work and put all that aside is something that's really incredible. Yeah, very hard. Some days were better than others. No, thank you for sharing that. Had that little, uh, had that case. He did okay. He did okay. Good to know. The the um, I guess we should. I just have a I just have go a ahead. few last ones. Yeah, go ahead. If you no, I, I just I was gonna go, you're gonna go to your last your yeah. big three. Just the last thing I'll ask is what any other advice you have for for students, you know, or in the thick of it now. Just you know, you've been through it. Just not necessarily about trauma or. Gosh, I have to just, say, I'm still going through it. This is such a process, and I don't suspect, despite the fact that early on when I was a student, I really thought there would be like some sort of like light at the end of the tunnel. I'd emerge and everything would just get easy. (laughs) I'm still waiting for that. And I think the more I get into what it means to be a physician um, and what it means to always want to be your best and to always learn, that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's a process. So be easy on yourself. That's good advice. And be easy on the people around you because it's really hard for all of us. but there is no better, there is no better profession, and there is no greater privilege. So, and I almost think there may not be a better place than Temple because, unfortunately, we see a lot of that around here. But fortunately, we have surgeons like you and stuff around to combat it the best that you guys can. Um, so I want to say thank you again for taking the time to do this. But we have um, a few quick questions. We always end every podcast with. Yeah. Um, uh, so, what's your favorite place to go out to eat in Philly? Ooh, good question. Hmm. And we know you have a lot of experience. <laughs> we go out, we, so... Well, you're from here and you lived here all your life. We used to go out to eat so okay. much. So, oh my gosh. I think my favorite place, and it, it's not the best meal in Philly, <laughs> but my favorite place to go out to eat in Philadelphia is this place called Fiorino which is this tiny little 15, uh, 
16 probably even number of seats restaurant in East Falls mm. um, it's a BYOB Northern Italian um, and Franco uh, runs it uh, he's Italian <laughs> and Biagio his okay. best bud for life is front of the house also Italian and I think the reason it's my favorite place is because it just feels like my neighborhood Great That's answer. good. I gotta, gotta try, try that. It before yeah. We publicize. We'll go. Okay. We should do a thing where we go and try every <laughs> single restaurant. <laughs> that could be a podcast. Yeah. That's what I say. Um, <laughs> so if you weren't a doctor, what would you be? You might have answered that a little Ooh. bit. But. If I weren't a doctor, I would be a contractor. A contractor. I, oh yeah. So actually, we this year my husband and I, along with my dad, who is a contractor. So I I grew up pounding nails, right? So my dad okay. would put us to work from like the time we were young, and I love working with my hands. Mm-hmm. Especially why I love being a surgeon. Um, and um, I actually love, it's, there's a lot of corollary. It's a lot less stressful. But I love taking apart and putting a house back together, um, making, making a home, uh, so to speak. So I think that's what I would do if I wasn't a doctor. Wow. So if you were had a week off, you could come help us with our uh, redoing our bathroom. Sure, just listen. Kidding. No, <laughs> seriously. Kidding. I actually, so we actually have a, oh, a small business. Um uh, and we are flipping a house right now, oh, wow. and I have done all of the tiling myself. Are you real? Wow! Yeah. So my mom's an interior decorator, oh, so cool. she would she would love. <laughs> that is she she always loves to have an extra contractor around. <laughs> that is great. So you do that on the side. That is yeah. Really wild. Okay. Yeah. That's, That's awesome. That is yeah. Great. yeah. Yeah. What's well, in your blood too? I guess. The <laughs> yeah. Contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, what do you do to escape? Oh, I'm pretty bad at escaping actually. <laughs> My husband's a psychotherapist, and if he were going to give you, if he were going to give me advice about myself and how to be healthier, he would tell me I need a better escape. I think that, um, I think that right now the most important escape I have is just uh, free, clear time with my daughter. Uh, usually having a dance party to like the Love Frozen it. soundtrack. Love that. Or uh, Kishibashi, who's her other favorite artist right now. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Right. Thank right. you. Yeah, this was fun. So, yeah. Dr. Mar, thanks so much. Yeah, of this course. was really great. Very Happy good. To be here. Really appreciate it.